Hi, everybody. Continuing the long list of fantastic guests on my show, I've got another fantastic guest today. Dinesh D'Souza is one of the most prolific scholars, if not in the United States, anywhere. I was trying to prepare uh, my introduction, and I stopped counting at around 13 or 14 books. Can you tell us what is the actual official count, uh, Dinesh? Uh, gosh, Dad, I'm not positive, but I think it's somewhere around 17 or 18 books. I've sort of lost count. I think I've become a little bit of a windbag with no sign of stopping. So I'm uh, starting to cook up a new one even now. But uh, no, you know, the books have been my bread and butter since I left the Reagan White House. Uh, this was at the very end of the Reagan years. And I went to the American Enterprise Institute. I, I decided, look, instead of being just a journalist, I'll try to be an author and develop a kind of uh, field of interest. And my, my topic has been largely speaking America in various phases and dimensions of it, the economic side, the political side. I wrote a book on Reagan. So that's been perhaps the unifying theme of my work, although I've done forays also into Christian apologetics. Well, there you go. That's probably my most hefty book of all. Uh, thank you so much for sending it to me. Uh, what the hell is going on? We don't judge the books by the, the, the number of inches of its width, but what the hell, man? I mean, what is going on? By the way, thank you very much for the lovely inscription inside. That was very kind of you. Uh, let me just mention, for those of you who, who may not know all of... I'm not going to mention everything. It'll take a whole hour. You're a Dartmouth College alumnus. You may or may not know that I was a visiting professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. And, uh, I did not know that. That is cool. Yeah, um, 2002, yeah. so way, way after you had finished, so we certainly didn't overlap. I'm a bit younger than you, but I had a great time, although I found that, you know, I, I did my MS and PhD at Cornell. Ithaca is a small town, but it's a lot bigger than Hanover. So how were you able to handle undergraduate life in that monastic place? You know, I, I didn't know anything about it. I mean, you have to remember that I, I came to America at the age of 17 as an exchange student. I lived in Arizona with a host family. I went to a small public school with 30 students in the senior class. The only reason I ended up in college is my high school counselor came up to me uh, one day and he basically said, I'm doing nothing. Most of our kids will go to the local university down the street or they won't go to college at all. So you are not my project for the year. So this is the guy who kind of shepherded me through the application process. Um, he chose Dartmouth, Yale, a, a bunch of other colleges for me to apply to. I had never been out east, so I picked the college I, I ended up attending pretty much out of the pictures in the catalog. <laughs> well, if that, if that was your cue for choosing, I don't know if you know, but the Cornell campus has been repeatedly chosen as the most beautiful campus in the United States. So maybe you didn't look at those photos carefully enough because I don't know if you've ever been to Ithaca or to Cornell. It is out of this world. It's like from Lord of the Rings. It is beautiful. I mean, you know, the Ivies are by and large gorgeous campuses. I lived in Princeton for a year after I graduated. Uh, I worked for an alumni magazine there. And of course, that you know, that's a beautiful campus. That Princeton Cathedral is awesome. Uh, Hanover is a lovely place and attracts a little different kind of student than the rest of the Ivies, a little bit more of the all-around student that likes to ski and go hiking in the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, I actually ended up embracing that kind of ethos of Dartmouth, the all-around student, um, and uh, I also got involved with a rebel conservative newspaper over there, which was a thorn in the side of the college administration. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I often play a game with my wife where, you know, we just say, what if, what if Dartmouth were to come to me now with a, you know, tenured position, would we go today? And I think that, our, you know, 20 years ago when I was a visiting professor there, it might have been a, a place that I would have been happy to be at, you know, raise, you know, we have young children and so on. But today, even though it's pretty close to, I guess, Boston, what, two, two and a half hours away? Does that sound right? Uh, yes. it, it strikes me as a bit too isolating, but I want to go go back to your uh, to the to the bio just to cover it. So you were a former policy analyst uh, for Reagan. I'd love to talk about Reagan for a bit. Uh, served as president of King's College for a few years, then you stepped down. Uh, I'll just mention a few of the books: A Liberal Education, The End of Racism, which I mentioned earlier; a book on Reagan, The Virtue of Pro Prosperity, What's So Great About America, What's So Great About Christianity. Then we got into a couple of books on Obama. We could talk about that as well. And then uh, I'll, I stopped at 2014, Amer America, Imagine a World Without Her. 
You've been a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, and you've released several very, you know, high-grossing uh, documentaries. So, so you've you've worn many hats, right? You've been a policy analyst, you've been a pundit, you've been a you know a, a TV or a podcast host, an author, uh, a documentarian. I'm sure you love all of these, but is there one that today you love more than the others, and if so, why? I, I wouldn't say that I love one more than the others. Part of it has been to kind of find my groove in each of the things that I, I do. So I started out as an author and speaker. Now, the speaking was a kind of spin-off of the, of the writing books. My first book, Illiberal Education, which was kind of the book that brought the idea of political correctness into the public spotlight. I suddenly found myself sitting on like 300 speaking invitations from universities all around the country. I had to kind of hire an agent. So I suddenly realized I've now become kind of a campus speaker. I hadn't planned on it, but it became part of my, my, um, my operation. Um, and so I was for many years kind of at a think tank. I was a writer and speaker. Um, and I started the movies only in 2012. So although I've now done five of them, uh, it was a relatively later addition to my career. And it came about again by complete accident. Um, a fellow was talking to me uh, and he said, look, I'd like to support your work. Uh, I want your books to reach a million people. And I, I said, guy, you know, I said, look, um, nonfiction books don't reach a million people typically, with very rare exceptions. A book is doing really well if it sells 100,000 copies. You're like number two on the New York Times bestseller list. And so this guy goes, well, how do you reach a million people? And I said, well, I kind of said, look at Michael Moore. This guy made Fahrenheit 9-11, <laughs> dropped it in the middle of the 2004 election. You know, that's how you do it. So this guy was like, listen, why don't you check it out? Um, maybe you can do the same thing. And that was the that was the way I kind of got into the movie business. And so um, I've tried to excel at each of the things I do, be a really good writer. I'm, I pay a lot of attention to the craft of writing, the originality of the argument. I do what a lot of writers don't do. I think about my audience. And by that, I mean, I think about writing in the same entrepreneurial way that somebody might think about selling a bar of soap. Right. You know, uh, very different than my colleagues at AEI. Uh, I once walked into um, one of my colleagues' offices at AEI, and this guy was writing a book, a very thick book, somewhat similar to The End of Racism, uh, hundreds of pages long, and he was calling it Tranquilitas Ordinance. And Yikes. I was like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> and he was like, oh yeah, this, is, this means uh, peace through tranquility. <laughs> uh, uh, or peace and order at the same time. And I said, well, yeah, but why would you give a Latin title to a book, however good it is? Who, who do you think is going to buy this book? And he looked at me as if, why would I consider a silly question like that? He, he had given no attention whatever to the audience. This is something that interested him. He thought the title was cool. So many intellectuals, I think, as you know, are like that. They, they are supply-siders. They produce things that interest them, but they give little or no thought to... What's the constituency for what I'm producing? What's the market for what I'm creating? No, you know, I, I love that you're saying this because in uh, chapter one of The Parasitic Mind, and maybe some of my viewers will, will get tired of me repeating the story, but some folks may have never watched it, so I'll repeat it here. Uh, I tell the story of uh, being invited to the Stanford Business School back in 2017 to speak. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was an academic talk. And uh, the gentleman who took me out, a, a, a colleague, who took me out the night before uh, for dinner uh, said to me, "Oh, you know, I see that you know you've been on Joe Rogan many times. You're you know you're a celebrity and so on. I didn't know all this about you." I said, "Yeah, you know, I it's it's really important to you know build bridges with the public masses. I want as many people as possible to consume my ideas." And so he looked at me with sort of disdain and said, "Well, you know, at Stanford we don't do research so that we can appear on Joe Rogan." I said, "Well, what?" What, what do you mean? You, you you don't think it's a good idea for you to be popularizing your ideas in front of you know 20 million downloads? Uh, it's not an either or. It's not you publish in peer-reviewed journals or you appear on Joe Rogan. How about doing both? But that disdain that he exhibited is something that I, I mean, I live in academia, right? And uh, it, it, it upsets me. It frustrates me. But ultimately, I think it's an ego defensive strategy because what they're basically saying I can't go on Joe Rogan and make myself exciting enough for 20 million people to listen to me. Therefore, I will denigrate it and continue producing titles that have Latin in them because then I can be highfalutin along with my colleagues. Yeah, I really do think that in modern academia, being obscure 
is seen as a sign of intelligence. Yes. If, if someone can, if you write in clear prose, and there are some academics who do, someone that I've done several debates with on campuses around the country, Stanley Fish, a world famous literary scholar, sure. one of the leading Milton scholars in the world. Now, Stanley Fish is a beautiful, even a lyrical writer, and he can deliver even academic prose with a great sense of aphorism. Uh, you know, he, he, he knows how to write the short and the long sentences. He's very punchy, he's combative, he's polemical, but at the same time, he's erudite, but he's not, he's not typical. Um, the typical literary scholar loves the idea of taking you down such a maze, such a Byzantine thicket, that after a while you conclude, I don't know what's going on, but I'm assuming the writer does. He must just be so much smarter than I am. Well, I, so I, let, me, let me build on what you just said. So, in, in, again, not to plug my own book, but it's, I want to at least cite myself uh, so that people know where it's coming from. In The Parasitic Mind, I tell the story of uh, Michel Foucault, you know, one of the grand bullshitters of postmodernism. So uh, they, I call them the three, the three French holy bullshitters, Jacques Derrida, Jacques Lacan, and Michel Foucault. And Michel Foucault uh, is talking to John Searle, the, the, the well-renowned uh, American philosopher. And John Searle says to him, you know, how come when I speak to you in person, it seems like I understand what you're saying and I, you know, you, you make sense. And yet when I read your stuff, you know, you get lost within the first couple of words. He goes, well, you know, it's because in France, if you don't confuse people, uh, then they don't take you seriously. So there is a built-in obscurantism within the writing, you know, because it's not just those physicists that write those deep formulas that nobody can understand. Us too in the humanities can come up with incomprehensible gibberish. We're important too. And I genuinely think that that's how all the postmodernist garbage started. It was a way by which they wanted to display their how erudite they are. It was full eruditeness, and yet they fooled tons of people for 40, 50 years. What do you think of that theory? Uh, I think that theory is correct, and it's really the theory in part that kept me out of academia. Uh, I would get calls in my early career from people like Harvey Mansfield, who was a professor I mean, maybe still is, but it's probably emeritus now at Harvard, saying, Dinesh, you know, why don't you do a PhD in political science um, and you can, you can have a Harvard PhD, it will always stand you in good stead. And I thought to myself, well, it would if I wanted to go into academia, but number one, there's just way too much um, political knifing in, 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 in academia. Um, well, and don't so I know it. You know, that's number one. And the second thing is that what you seem to have in these academic fields today, and I, you know, you mentioned that there's a specialized language in science, and there is. There's also a specialized language in law. Think about, for example, the way a legal brief has its own distinctive way of speaking. And I think you're right that political scientists and literary people said, well, we don't have that in our fields. Right. Well, maybe we need it. Maybe we need our own trade vocabulary that only people who go to the American Historical Association or the American um, you know, Literary Association convention can understand. And that way people will understand we must be a serious discipline. We've got our own lingo after all. Do you at all regret that if only, because in French we say carte de visite, like your business card, if only for the, and I don't suggest that anybody do a PhD just so that they could signal that they're a doctor so-and-so, but if only because it, it would have done as your, the, the prospective professor had said to you, do you regret not having done it, at least it's in your bag? No, I, I, I sort of created my own version of it, and, and let me explain. I, I discovered that in the 80s there were these think tanks, yeah. And the think tanks were sort of like universities, but without students. And some <laughs> professors might go, well, the best kind, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Thomas Sowell would say that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Thomas Sowell, think of the productivity of a guy like Thomas Sowell, because you're not teaching classes, you sit down, you think. And so the, universe, the think tanks were created for academically minded people, but academics who had a particular thrust for public policy, who, who were interested in the application of their ideas to society. And I thought, well, that's me. And I said, how can I make an advantage of not, let's say, pursuing a PhD? Well, the way to do that is to really um, uh, plunge myself into interdisciplinary work. Yeah. Because obviously, if I become an anthropologist, I'm going to focus only on anthropology. If I become an economist, I'll focus just on economics. But if you look at the end of racism, or even some of my work in Christian apologetics, you'll notice there are chapters on physics, chapters on brain science, chapters on philosophy, which discuss Kant. So in a way, I've been able to use the kind of podium of the think tanks 
to do forays into a lot of different fields where I obviously rely on experts in those fields, sure. but I'm able to try to draw links and make connections that you wouldn't normally do in an academic department. I mean, I love that you mentioned the importance of interdisciplinarity because I am arguably, you know, the, if I may say, the epitome of an interdisciplinary academic. I've published of course, in uh, business journals, because I'm housed in a business school, I've published in tons of psychology journals, evolutionary theory, medicine, bibliometrics, economics, uh, precisely because I am what I like to call an intellectual buffet type of guy, meaning that I just, I look at this huge landscape of possibilities and I literally get offended, epistemologically offended that, oh, I should only be publishing in consumer psychology or in evolutionary psychology. Now, of course, in terms of how the reward mechanisms are built in academia, I have the perfectly wrong CV in that I've often been told by fellow academics, hey, God, you know, you're, you're a whatever, fantastic guy. How come you, you know, you laid yourself thin all over the place? It comes across as though you're not focused. And my answer is, you mean it's not more impressive that I can publish in top journals in medicine and psychology and business and economics rather than publishing in some very, very narrow stay-in-your-lane field? But the way that academia is built, it's really a world of specialists and people who'd like to get out of the lane are frowned upon. That's very true. I mean, even when I was in the political world, I, you know, I remember when I, I joined the Reagan administration in early '87. And this was at the heart of the Iran-Contra scandal. So to my horror, I kind of marched in there. I've got a huge office. I've got you know, access to a car. I'm meeting in the private mess. And I'm only in my 20s. Wow. But the whole administration is paralyzed because they're focused on Iran-Contra. Everything is about Ali North and everything is about all this stuff. And so nothing is happening. And so I say to myself, why did I join the administration? I'm literally sitting at my desk, twiddling my thumbs. And so what do I do? I sit down and I write a long essay on Robert Frost, the poetry of Robert Frost, and I want to send it to a prestigious literary journal called the Sawani Review. But of course, if you're in the government, it has to be approved. So I send it into the legal office of the White House for approval, and I literally get a call from the White House lawyer, and he's really puzzled. He goes, Dinesh, an essay on Robert Frost? And I go, yeah. And he goes, why would you waste your time writing an essay on Robert Frost? And I go, because I have literally nothing to do. And so I figured to myself, why not, you know, write an essay for a literary magazine? And he goes, how do you expect me to even approve this? You know, because he was supposed to see if this was consistent with Reagan right, administration right. policy. And of course, this was an essay about poems like The Road Not Taken. And so he was, I just, I just remember even to this day his bewilderment that any policy guy would do something so far-fetched uh, as write an article, not, let's say, for example, for the National Review or the New Republic, but write an article for an obscure, although very influential, literary journal about po poetry. Don't, don't keep me hanging. Was it a cleared and then was it published? Or does it, is it sitting somewhere collecting dust? No, it actually got sort of... It got sort of blocked in the review process because even though this guy liked it, they were like, "Listen, this may be taken the wrong way. Uh, you, you know, you're kind of a your figure in the administration, so you may want to hold off." Bottom line of it is, I wasn't able to actually do it, but I did write it. Uh, going back, so I asked you at the start of this last thread of uh, conversation, I asked you if you regretted that you didn't uh, pursue a PhD. Uh, let me blow up that question uh, of regret. In a, in a grander way. And I and the reason why I like to ask this question is because I'm actually working on my next book, only my fifth book. So I'm just a little spring chicken compared to your productivity. But uh, uh, so in this book, I, I talk about sort of, you know, a recipe for the good life. That's the tentative title. And one of the chapters is, you know, uh, the, the ancient Greeks had this concept of ataraxia, tranquility of mind. And if you could, you know, have tranquility of mind, then you've lived a good life. And so I argue that one of the things that can affect our ability to achieve ataraxia is if we are uh, haunted by many regrets. And so here I want to set up, uh, actually, it's one of my former doctoral professors at uh, Cornell. His name is Tom Gilovich, who pioneered the study of psychology of regret in the following way. So he argued and, and demonstrated through many studies that there are really two sources of regret uh, when you ask people, what do you regret more, most in life? There are regret due to an action. Uh, I regret that I was uh, 
I wasn't, you know, I was mean to my wife and that resulted in our divorce. So it's something that I did that I regret versus regret due to inaction. You know, I've always wanted to uh, be a chef, but yet I went into uh, accounting because my dad is an accountant and now I feel like my talent has been wasted. And it turns out for long-term regrets, people are much more haunted by regret due to inaction, things that I didn't do than things that I did. Now, we all have things that we regret. So if I were to ask you right now, so far in your life, what are your greatest regrets and do they fit into the action or inaction, what would you answer? Well, certainly in the, in the sort of um, professional domain, when I was um, when I graduated from Dartmouth, I mean, I come from a very kind of traditional Asian American family, you could say. Um, and so when I told my parents I'm thinking of going to Washington to be a journalist, they were like, Dinesh, we suggest you do something productive with your life. Engineering they to or to, doctor, right? They wanted me to go to business school. I or mean, I was school. admitted to the Wharton Business School at that time, maybe still now, the top business school in the right. country. And, and they saw me going into a successful career in, you know, the corporate world. Um, but uh, and, and, they, and as they saw it, you know, this world of American politics was incomprehensibly uh, strange. Uh, and why would their son raised in, uh, you know, a suburb of Mumbai want to get all mixed up in something that could that seemed only to bring trouble with it? And um, so interestingly, it was a pivotal time of my career when I decided to sort of become a writer and kind of go for it and stay with it. And fortunately, I got the job in the White House before my kind of two-year deferral at the Wharton Business School had, you know, elapsed. So I was able to send my parents a very nice photo of me sitting side by side with Reagan so that even though they didn't really know what I was doing, they figured I must be doing something. Here I'm sitting right next to the president of the United States. So they were like, okay, son, you know, you can keep going. Um, now, from a young age, I've been fascinated by literature. I was an English major at Dartmouth. Uh, you know, I love the work of Milton, of Dante, obviously the, the, uh, the tragedies of the ancient Greeks. Um, and I've often thought to myself that, you know, that writing in the, in the domain of fiction is something I would have loved to do. But what happens, I think, is that because I was really successful, I've, had, I've been very lucky to be successful in my first attempt of all the major pivots of my life. So my first book, huge bestseller, 15 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. I was on every TV show. This is a liberal education. This is a liberal education. Yeah. Then I do my first movie, uh, which was 2016 Obama's America, $30 million in the wow. box office, the second most successful documentary ever made, uh, very influential, put a new idea about Obama out there. So what happened is, Ironically, by being drawn into this side of the, um, uh, the nonfiction side of writing and being very successful at it, you then, of course, realize that the moment you finish a book, a publisher is breathing down your neck. What's your next book? Yeah. Here's a big fat advance to write that book. And you think to yourself, when am I going to find a year to write a book on fiction where I'm not established? Nobody even knows who I am. So the opportunity cost of trying to go down that road becomes very high. And as a result, I've never done it. Wow. Uh, by the way, just uh, you, you may or may not know this that uh, you may have not know this, but the, my uh, parasitic mind and my next book are with Regnery. And unless I'm mistaken, you'll correct me. You might be the most prolific and most successful Regnery author ever. Right. You probably have seven, eight books with them. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. Well, I mean, the Regnery has also gone through some phases over the years. They're very good at what they do. And so um, it was with Regnery, actually, that I published. I, I have in my run of best-selling books, I have three number one New York Times bestsellers, and they all came back to back and they were all with Regnery. Fantastic. So, uh, so with Regnery, I've had three number one books in a row. And uh, so I've had a really terrific relationship with them. And I'm doing my next book with them as well. Oh, that's what you know, I, I got to tell you, uh, I, I'm. I can easily be personally slighted. Maybe it's just, it's partly my personhood. It's partly the Middle East, you know, honor code. And yet I've never found any reason to be personally slighted by any individual who works for Regnery. Meaning that at every contact point, whether it be the president of Regnery, whether it be my editor at Regnery, whether it be the copy editor, the promotional people, the salespeople, they've all been just a plus folks so much so that when i was now working on my next book even though i could have had opportunities because parasitic mind has been very successful i could have gone elsewhere maybe gotten a bigger advance i felt so 
comfortable with them and so loyal to them that uh, you know it's it, you know being an author in part you really have to have a right marriage with the right publisher because you know we also have fragile egos at times we want to make sure that the publisher supports us and I found that they've been top notch and so I'm delighted that you're going back with them for the next book that's great. I mean, for me, it's been uh, the publisher, but it's also been uh, the individual editor. And so uh, about five of my books have been done. This is not at Regnery with a single editor, Adam Bellow. Now, Adam Bellow is the son of the Nobel laureate Saul Bellow. Wow. Uh, and he was, he was in his 20s when he published my first book in liberal education. He had come to the free press out of the University of Chicago. He had studied under Alan Bloom and some of the so-called Straussians wow. that taught there. Uh, and Adam, of course, came from this kind of very established, you know, American literary royalty family. But he was uh, had a philosophical disposition. And so he's become one of my closest friends over the years. Um, and so that kind of um, philosophical friendship, if you will, and at, at Regnery, I've had an editor, uh, Harry Crocker, who's been That's there my guy. Years. Yeah. Harry's just, you know, Harry's just the salt of the earth. He's this oh. dry guy. Uh, you know, he's uh, I'm he's in a, love with the guy. Anglophile. Uh, he's very interested in history. Uh, and so I've had just had a beautiful relationship with Harry over the years and just a very good kind of, again, political partnership in the books I've done with Regnery. I'm so glad that you mentioned Harry because I didn't know if you wanted to release the names of the editors that you worked with, although I, I suppose that they're public. Uh, both of my books, I mean, the, the one that I'm working on now and the first one, I insisted that it be Harry. And I said, it has to be you. I said, look, being my editor, the most important thing is trust, right? So I, I've got to feel that, you know, you're going to be the, I'm not the type of guy, by the way, who sends out my manuscripts to a million people to read and give feedback to. I'm extremely protective. But if I find the right person that I can trust with my words, you know, you, you're, I mean, you've written a million books. So, you know, you, you've sat there every day toiling over every word and every comma. When you now give your baby to someone, you want to be able to trust that person. And I, and I tell you, on the parasitic mind, his main feedback was, I had submitted, I think, something like 93,000 words, give or take. And uh, the contract originally stipulated 70,000 words. But of course, you as the author, you think that every single word is necessary to be there. I mean, I remember I was sitting at the cafe for four hours writing those four sentences. Now you want them cut. And then he, he very gently said to me, look, the book is fantastic. It's going to be a, a huge success. It's too long. Please consider. And it was very polite, right? I think it'll be a much better, you know, book that everybody wants to turn and get through it in one seating uh, or sitting or whatever the term is, uh, if we bring it down. And I, you know, with complete humility, I listened to him. I went back. I cut out about 20,000 plus words. And uh, I'm happy to say that he was right. Absolutely. No, that's very often what an editor brings. And editors are different by temperament. So Adam, for example, does not edit my books in the normal way. He doesn't go through them line by line. He doesn't do any of that. He's interested in the fundamental, the philosophical thrust of the book, the single art. You know, books should, should be threaded by a single big idea or a single argument. And so he's always looking to see, is there like a break in the tension? You know, does the, does the argument lapse at any point? And he, so his focus really is on getting your idea really clear. And then he leaves it to me to sort of execute it. It's almost like, let's get the blueprint of the building right and then you go build the building and I'm just going to stand and kind of watch and chuckle and enjoy the whole process. But I'm not going to come in and start fiddling with the paint in this room or that room. That's not my job. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, you call it blueprint. I call it with my students when I'm giving them feedback, when they send me, you know, first draft of a thesis. I call it the roadmap. And I keep writing. Where's the roadmap? There's no roadmap. I don't know where's the unfolding story. I don't know what the narrative is. And it. I think... I mean, it sounds conceptually as though it's an easy thing to do, but it isn't, right? You And I can see how, you know, in version four of a student's thesis, how much we've come. You know, I'm telling them, you're telling a story, right? Whether you're writing a scientific paper or a thesis or, in, you know, books to be consumed by the masses, you're a storyteller. You have to... You know, as you said, build the tension. There is a rhythm. There is a cadence. Where am I in the story? And I think for starting authors, it's very difficult to to get that concept. Do you think it's something that is innate in us, or is this something that we can truly teach people to be good at? 
Well, I think like a lot of things, you know, I compare it, say, to tennis. You can, with a good coach, learn to hit some basic good shots. Uh, you can learn a little bit of strategy, but at a certain level, and I would say by and large when you're, when you're in a certain domain, you, it, it's not enough to have mastered the craft. You have to have that gift, the feel yeah. for it. I've worked very hard to cultivate this in speaking. You know, in other words, speaking is an art, and it's a different art than writing. Um, the, um, in, in speaking, uh, I think a key element is to be able to read the audience and literally feel the audience. Um, so that if you are ever drifting off, if the audience is losing interest, you pick up on it in a sense even before they do, and you can immediately modify and go in a different direction. Uh, I would sometimes watch Reagan's speeches uh, mainly for just one issue, timing. Reagan was a genius in, in the matter of timing. And you would see this in Reagan's jokes. He knows exactly when to pause and when to then drop the punchline. And he has the perfect facial expression when he does. It's a mixture of, uh, you know, it, it's a wry smile, but he's not laughing at his own joke. You're laughing, he's not laughing, but he's letting you know by the glimmer in his eye that he knows that he's got you with that one. So it's all that chemistry that goes into the way you deliver a line. And you can learn by observation, but I think you must also have a natural feel to be able to, to really pull it off at the best level. Yeah, we, you know, we started our semester, uh, my teaching semester, just a few weeks ago, and we're, we're into week two now. And uh, the issue of na nature versus nurture came up. And of course, most things, it's an inextricable mix of both. But we were talking about, you know, can, you know is humor innate? Or can you teach it in a seminar? Is charismatic leadership innate or can you teach it in a seminar? Now, if I am in the business of making money through seminars, then I'm going to try to convince people that, no, don't worry, come to my, you know, one, two, three seminar and I'll teach you to be funny. But the reality is, as you said, that much of it is innate. Yes, there are certain rules of thumbs that I can use in terms of how to create the tension before I tell a, a punchline or something. But the reality, you know, if I may say, a lot of people think that, you know, I, I have a, a rather unique sense of humor in terms of how I use satire and sarcasm. I mean, I didn't go to a seminar on sarcasm by Voltaire to, to learn how to do this. It just, I can remember when I was seven and eight years old, my mother in Arabic would say, oh, you have such a sharp, ironic tongue. I mean, in Arabic. So that was something that was there. I, I, nobody socialized me when I was seven to, to know how to do that, how to mock some absurdity and so on. So, so I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, the reason I, it's kind of interesting because the reason I got into American colleges is because when I was a kid, um, maybe about 10, um, I was once, uh, I came across a word in the, uh, the Times of India, which is the kind of Indian version of the New York Times, um, that I'd never seen before. Uh, and I was interested in words, so I was like, wow. Uh, and so I go to the dictionary and I begin to sort of digest the different meanings of the word. And then the idea crossed my mind, I should memorize the dictionary. So I start memorizing the dictionary and I, I, I have my brother and sister open to random pages in the dictionary, ask me the most difficult word they can find and I'll tell them what the meaning of it is. And, I, and we do this for like two years. So then I come to America and while I mentioned, you know, I'm in this public school in Arizona, my high school counselor says, you know, in order to get into college, you have to take a test. And I'm like, oh, no, I mean, I, I don't I've never studied American history. There's a lot of stuff that American kids know that I don't. But he goes, no, the test is basically in two things, vocabulary and math. And so to my unbelievable good luck, the two things that I'm actually extremely good at happen to be the two exact things that they're going to measure in getting into college. So, again, you know, this, the, the love of words and language, to me, that, that's, that is innate because I have that. My brother and sister do not have it to the same degree. Uh, and I've worked hard to develop it, but that's the case of nurture following nature. Yeah, uh, beautiful. Uh, just since we were talking about Reagan, any, uh, how often did you closely interact with him so that you're able to say, oh, he, here are some great stories that I can share with, with the audience? Well, I mean, I'll just share one. And to sure. be honest, I was, I, was not, I was not a member of the senior staff. In fact, I, was, I worked for something called the Domestic Policy Council. It's the DPC. It's the domestic equivalent of the National Security Council. Okay. But I was just a staffer. So what that means is that there'll, there'll be a room, and here's Reagan, and he's sitting with 10 guys on the table. And then there's about 10 of us standing in the back of the room with a notepad. We do not participate. We don't say anything. But we can listen, and we can watch. 
And for me, it was extremely interesting to watch Reagan because there would be animated debates about some issue, let's say uh, farm price supports or affirmative action. And there's Ed Meese and there's Pat Buchanan and they're kind of going at it. And Reagan is fully engaged for about 10 minutes. Uh, and then if, if the thing starts going on and on, I can see that Reagan becomes withdrawn. Reagan checks out. And so these guys are still going at it. And then I'm kind of watching Reagan and I notice that he looks down and there's a big jar of jelly beans on the table. And so Reagan kind of reaches over and slides the jar. And then I notice that he's sorting the jelly beans by color, you know, putting the reds into one. And, and I'm thinking to myself, this is really, I mean, what's going on here? But I, I realized with Reagan that this was a guy who focused on the macro of things, not the micro. Um, and because uh, I, I learned later that when the Grenada operation was being planned with Reagan, uh, you know, the, 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 in comes the military. They've got all these maps. They're trying to explain to Reagan, the commander who's in charge of the operation, we're going to do this and we're going to land on this bridge and we're going to do this. And Reagan just kind of taps him on the shoulder and goes, son, I'm confident that you know what you're doing. You don't have to show all of this to me. Just kind of go out and do it. So <laughs> wow. that was Reagan. That's amazing. You know, I recently chatted with, uh, you know, Dean Kane, Superman. You know that is, and so he tells the story of when he was early in his career, you know, as a young actor. Apparently, I, I, I'm going to botch the story, so I don't remember the exact details. But apparently, Reagan, you know, called for him. He said, "Oh, you know, this 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 young man seems interesting. I'd like to to meet him." And as as Dean and I were chatting, I said, "You know, I, I of course I've never met any of these people. I'm sitting up in Canada, uh, but." I use sort of a, I think a pretty diagnostic test in that when, you know, when you see these people, there are all sorts of cues that you're picking up that allows you to, I mean, if you're astute about human behavior, to kind of get a general schema as to who they are. And so if I look at Reagan, he strikes me as the type of guy that if I was sitting to dinner with him, I would really like him. He's just a cool guy. Whereas, you know, if I look, and so I'm not, I'm not talking policy here, I'm talking about the personhood of, of that individual. Whereas when I talk about, when I think about Obama, he truly strikes me as a narcissist. There would be no room for you to be able to engage him because he is King Obama and he sucks all of the attention of that room. Uh, Trump, in a sense, is similar. I mean, in a, diff in a different way, but he too would be the type of guy who probably would not have the generosity of spirit to say, hey, I'd like to know about you. It's about me, me, me. Am I at all correct in those general perceptions? I, I agree with those 100%. Um, and I've had pretty close exposure to, um, well, I, to early all three, not being in the same room with Obama, but I've studied Obama with care. Uh, and the, um, yes, it's absolutely right. See, with Reagan, you know, if Reagan was sitting with somebody like uh, Friedrich Hayek, let's say, and Hayek was talking about, um, uh, economics. And, and Hayek is talking about something, let's say something quite obscure, like, um, you know, Hayek talks about, you know, what's going on on Lexington and 29th Street in New York right now? And who's in the best position to know that? Is it the government? Uh, or is it the guy who operates a hot dog stand at that exact intersection? Doesn't that guy understand the, the movement of things, including the commerce of it? Um, because he's local, he's on the scene. So, um, and, and then Hayek will develop some term that explain, you know, the information society or something like that. And the thing about Reagan is Reagan would cock his ear up and go, the information society, well, what do you mean by that? You know, so Reagan was interested in Solzhenitsyn. This is why Reagan could yeah. keep a friendship with William F. Buckley. Now, Reagan didn't have one third of the vocabulary of Buckley. Uh, he wouldn't have read, you know, church documents, for example, the way Buckley did. But Reagan was intrigued by ideas. And when I visited years later his, um, his ranch in Santa Barbara in the mountains, you can see that he's got all these books like Whitaker Chambers' book Witness, which is, you know, a very long book about Chambers' conversion away from communism. And if you open the book, there's Reagan's handwriting in the margins on wow. page after page after page. So it's a book he read with care. That's amazing. Uh, let's go to uh, your uh, studying English background because I'd like to Darwinize English literature for a second and you'll understand in a minute what I mean by that. And then we could talk about all sorts of recent current events if you'd like. Uh, but I got to tell you, I'm really enjoying this free-flowing conversation. Thank you, Dinesh. Uh, so English literature, one of the... Th so often people say, well, you know, where can you apply 
the evolutionary lens to? What, what are some disciplines where you can or can't? And I usually answer, not facetiously, but very, very truthfully, that anything that involves biological beings is amenable to an evolutionary analysis, right? I mean, nothing exists outside of our biology. And so let's take an example that epitomizes the humanities, that feels as though it's non-scientific. And let me discuss ways by which you can Darwinize English literature. And then I'd love to take your take on it. But before I do, and not to put you on the spot, do, do you have any idea what I might mean by Darwinizing literary criticism? No, I'm actually very intrigued as to where you're going with this. Oh, now, oh, I that's should great. say, you know, that even as someone who's done a lot of work in Christian apologetics, I'm relatively one of the few people who is in that area that uh, embraces evolution across the board. Oh, that's great. But you've got some of these Christian evolutionists and theists, and they'll say, well, you know, I, I agree with microevolution, but I don't agree with macro. They're always trying to say that, that, right. that it's right to this degree, but it got it wrong on that. Um, and what I've done is, is actually focus my work in a different direction, which is to ask questions. And by the way, I'm not alone in doing this. I, there's a biologist, you probably know his work, Simon Conway Morris. Yeah. He's done work on the Burgess Shale out of either Oxford or Cambridge. And so the, the question I've looked at in evolution is this, is evolution directional in any way? Or was Richard Dawkins right when he said that if you rewind the tape of life all the way back, we would come out radically differently if you played the tape again. Um, and there's a debate within evolutionary sure. biology on this very point. That's something that's intrigued me. But no, when you say Darwinizing literature, I'm waiting to see what okay. you're going to So next. we could certainly get into what you just discussed. And I remember, I think you had told me offline that uh, had we had more time when you kindly invited me on your show, we might have talked about this. So we can certainly talk about it now or table it for another one anyways we can we can decide later but so let me go with darwinian literary criticism so typically what happens with literary criticism is you have some preferred lens through which you want to analyze literary text uh, i'm coming from a feminist perspective i'm coming from a marxist perspective i'm coming from a postmodernist perspective and now you will view that narrative through that particular lens. It's about class struggle, it's about the patriarchy, it's about uh, relativism and so on. Okay, well, what Darwinian literary criticism does is it says, wait a second, to the extent that literature captures us, uh, you know, activates our emotions, the fact that I could listen or watch or read a poem from, from 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece, where the guy doesn't know what an iPhone is or what a plane is, but I can completely understand what he's saying in this poem. He's talking about, you know, uh, sexual betrayal. He's talking about paternity uncertainty. He's talking about sibling rivalry. He's talking about status seeking. So there's a few universal Darwinian themes that drive much of literature, right? So literature is a window to our human nature. And so what I argue in several of my books is that in the same way that a paleontologist uses skeletal remains to construct the phylogenetic history of a species, right? I mean, I could say things about the mating behavior of a species that has now been extinct for 65 million years because of those skeletal and fossil remains. Well, the human mind doesn't fossilize, but the cultural products that it leaves behind is akin to a fossil. So I could study the content of those cultural products, including literature, to posit something about the universality of human nature. What do you think of all this? No, this is fantastic. I mean, I would put it, I would put it slightly differently. Um, we have a lot of emphasis in academia today on diversity. Uh, and the, uh, not just diversity in America, but let's just say global diversity. And so the idea here is you go to other cultures uh, and you try to kind of um, uh, uh, present the ecosystem in those cultures uh, and then, of course, the idea, the underlying idea is that all cultures have a certain inherent legitimacy. No culture is better or worse. This is all cultural relativism. We're all very familiar with it. But there's a completely different approach, which I would describe as the approach, let's say, of the ancient Greeks, the, the Herodotean approach to history. So Herodotus believed that history is universal. Um, but in order to find out what is universal, you have to go to different cultures uh, and you have to compare and contrast. Your idea is not to affirm diversity for its own sake. You're actually trying to find the best. 
You're trying to find the best ideas. You're trying to find uh, what systems of marriage work best. Uh, you're trying to find, for example, you know, which cultures have, for example, made the most breakthroughs in, the, in philosophy, for example. So diversity is not an end in itself, um, but it is, a, it is a kind of harvesting ground for the inquiring mind uh, to be able to separate what the Greeks called is natural from what is conventional. Right. What's conventional is local and particular. What is natural is what's universal what's delivered by nature itself. And that's, of course, the area of Darwinian biology that you're talking about. So, so to me, there's a way of looking at this through philosophy that nevertheless overlaps closely with what you're saying, which is to say, what is the biological yep. uh, universality that we can find, whether we're reading you know, the tale of Genji or the Bhagavad Gita, or whether we're reading Jane Austen, you're going to see certain human themes emerge that would be of interest to someone with a kind of liberal, in the small L sense, biological mind. Exactly right. But incidentally, since you mentioned the, the ancient Greeks, in writing the current book that I'm working on, uh, I wanted to look at the various traditions, past traditions that have studied things like, you know, what are the prescriptions to, to well-being and to happiness? And that's probably one of the, the questions that is most addressed by, by philosophers of all ilk and certainly the ancient Greeks. And as I was reading the, I mean, I think I had, you know, more knowledge about the ancient Greeks than the average person, but I'm certainly, I'm, I'm hardly a classicist. And as I kind of jumped into that literature I would just kind of, and I actually put out a tweet maybe a month ago. I said, God damn, I don't know what they had in the water, the ancient Greeks, but it seems like they've covered everything, right? I mean, it seems like some of the insights that, you know, I'm super excited about because somebody published a paper in some super prestigious psychology journal, you know, seven years ago, I can point to some guy in ancient Greece who, who said the exact same thing without all the statistical analyses and the scientific method, but they had already had those insights. So it really is unbelievable what those guys must have had in their water to be able to generate this profound knowledge in all areas of human import. It's unreal. Unreal. I mean, think of someone like Democritus without doing a single experiment. He goes that you look at the diversity of things in the world, none of which seem to really resemble each other. And he goes, well, I think that all these different things are really made out of one thing that if you drill down small enough, you know, I mean, the Greeks thought about questions like if you take a glass of water and pour half of it out and you keep doing that, uh, will you always have water or will at some point right. you reach a point where where no, you can't break that down any further. And so these questions, which are really at the foundation of modern physics, for example, yeah. the, the discovery of the atom, the probing of the atom, you know, uh, all of that was philosophically anticipated by the Greeks. But So what? What I mean, this may be a too difficult question, but let's let's take a crack at it. So, what was it in the water? What 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 is it in the? Uh, was it the way that the the schools were structured? Was it, I mean, facetiously something in the water? Was it their love of philosophizing for no other reason than to be a philosopher? What is it that made those folks so uniquely incredible in generating knowledge that is so unbelievably profound? You know, I have to say, there was a book, I think, written, written by the classicist Edith Hamilton, and it was literally called The Greek Miracle. Um, oh and I don't know of another way to describe it, because if you think about it, even before Socrates, the so-called pre-Socratics, mm. right, these are the very first guys giving a stab at philosophy. Um, and even though their writings are very fragmentary, and we have very few of them in, in original form, we just have quotations here and there, they are raising just fundamental questions about change, about motion. Um, they're looking at can the can the world be understood mathematically? Um, the Greeks invent not just philosophy; they invent the theater. Uh, they invent ancient democracy, which is of course direct democracy. So you've got these breakthroughs in so many different areas, and they're all occurring in one place within a space of about a century and a half. The fifth century BC um, is absolutely the high point of Greece. And they're doing all of this in the middle of a terrible war, the Peloponnesian War, which will last for over 20 years. And basically, uh, Greece is defeated never to rise again. So this is just such a strange episode in the history of humanity. And then you look across the pond, you look over to India, you look over to China, and there are interesting things happening in those civilizations. But I think nothing to compare with the splendor yeah. of ancient Greece. Well, I mean, you pointed to the fact that eventually, of course, the ancient Greek civilization was no longer 
let's see if we can be optimistic or maybe we'll be pessimistic. Is the United States, if we look down the, the lens of the future, going to head to way, the way of the ancient Greeks? Or can we have an optimistic take that we're going to recover from all the, as what I call the idea pathogens that have infected the Western mind? So I'm, a, I'm, you know, I would say an optimist by temperament, um, uh, but but I do, do think that we are rapidly moving out of an era that I've lived through now for most of my adult life, and I would call that the era of American privilege. Um, I was on a cruise about 15 years ago in the Middle East. This was a cruise uh, through Riyadh and then down to Cairo, just um, a number of the Muslim countries I had never been to. And when we were in Saudi Arabia, well, you get off the ship, the women have to put on an abaya. You can't walk around. So they, they hand you these abayas. And basically the Europeans, people all over the world were like, yeah, give me my abaya. When in Rome, do let the Romans and so on. But the Americans were like, I'm not gonna put on an abaya. And, and, and it was interesting to hear American women basically say, I'm an American, meaning I'm not gonna play by the same rules as everybody else, I'm special. My passport is better than everybody else's passport. And the interesting thing was everybody on the cruise agreed. In other words, the, the American superiority was taken for granted. And I think that's been the case since World War II, but I'm seeing that rapidly erode really before our eyes. So is America finished? I wouldn't go that far. But is the era of American dominance in which America, you know, like the old Coca-Cola ad, is it, in which everybody wants to be more like the Americans and walk like them and talk like them, and American universities are presumptively the best in the world. I think we're going to see in the next 20 years that, that elite families around the world are not necessarily going to send their kids to American universities. Yeah, I know. I hear you. Now, do you think the fact that you and I are both immigrants, I mean, in my case to Canada, although I've, I've lived for many years in the US, uh, I'm sort of an honorary American, you know, if only because of that, and certainly because of my love for the ideals that the United States stands for. And of course, you too, you're an immigrant. Think about Ayan Hersey Ali, who comes from the background. And I do get the feeling, I mean, although this is going to be anecdotal, but I think that if we probably did an empirical study, we'd find that some of the most dogged defenders of the Western traditions in today's contemporary reality are folks who have uh, buffeted, if I can put it, could put the buffet as a verb, into the panoply of other cultures, recognizing that there is a miraculous reality, an anomaly in the history of humanity called the West, called the United States, and therefore having experienced those other things, we can truly appreciate and not be ingrates about uh, what the U.S. is or Canada, and therefore we defend it with greater alacrity. Do you think there's some value to that position? Yes, I do. Uh, not only is it the fact that the immigrant has an, an actual lived experience in another culture, um, but I think what happens is I remember uh, several years ago I was doing a debate with Jesse Jackson at Stanford. We were debating is America a racist society? Um, and so my strategy was I said, hey, Reverend Jackson, look, uh, you can hold up your hand. I'll put my hand right next to it. We're exactly the same color. I said, now, um, I, you know, we're in a, this is a big country. If you're trying to show me an example of racism, I'm sure you can find it in a big country. But show me a racism today in America that's going to prevent my daughter or your kids from achieving the American dream. Where's that kind of racism? Show it to me right now. And interestingly, he, he was like, mm, you know how he plays yeah, with his mustache and so on. His basic theme was, I can't show it to you, but that's not because the racism has gone away. It's just gone underground. It's covert racism. And I was like, wow. But, you know, but as I was listening to him, I was thinking to myself, you know, why is it the case that he and I see this country so differently? Uh, you know, we, it's kind of like we're two guys sitting at a cafe, they look and they see an accident on the street, but they give radically different accounts of it. How is that really possible? And I think I finally figured it out. It occurred to me that, look, I, as an immigrant, I'm always comparing America to some other existing culture. I'm using a comparative or historical basis of comparison, and I realized that never does Jesse Jackson do that. He's using what can be called the utopian standard. Let's compare America to the Garden of Eden, you know? Right. And so naturally he finds America finds, falls woefully short. And, and what's interesting to me is he develops an indignation based upon that. And he begins to revile America 
for not living up to what is often the American standard itself. Wow, what a what a subtle point. I mean, you know, in this in psychology and decision making, we often study things like you know how do you do comparative calculus, right? I mean, so for example, if I want to decide if I'm happy, I could compare myself to relevant others. I could compare myself to how I thought I would be at this stage when five years ago when I made that comparison. I could compare myself now to where I'm hoping to be in five years and if I'm on the right trajectory. So if I alter the metric of comparative calculus, I come up with completely different uh, realizations of my current well-being. And so that's exactly what you're saying in terms of your comparison to that. Of, I, I love that. Okay, let's talk very briefly and then uh, we'll wrap it up with any uh, promotional things that you'd like to talk about, uh, if you have any. It, it's difficult to, you know, uh, go through your bio without recognizing that you are someone, you know, whether you, you, you mean it, whether you are a, a, a willful provocateur or whether it just comes to you because of your style of engagement or whatever. You, you're divisive, right? So, for example, if I say, hey, I'm appearing on uh, Dinesh D'Souza's show and I'm, I'm just excited because he strikes me like a cool guy and I'm going to have a fun conversation. Then I look at some of the comments. Oh, my God, are you insane? You're going... And I'm like, I didn't even know that he was so controversial. Maybe I'm too naive. And then, so I start looking and, of course, I see some people love you, some people hate you. So, number one, is this something that... Yeah, we're all human. We all don't like if people say bad things about us. Of course, some of us can do this and some of us have thicker or thinner skins. How do you deal? You know, you're certainly one of the most uh, divisive people in the public sphere. How do you deal with it? Is it does it roll off you or does it ever, uh, you know, eat away at you? No, quite honestly, it not only rolls off me, but there's a little bit of me. And I don't think I'm normal in this regard that enjoys it. Um, because it brings attention to you? Why is it? Because... No, no, it's not that. It's, it's, that um, it's that a little part of me is detached from myself and observing myself in the arena and kind of enjoying the show. Let me give a very recent example. I was trending on Twitter yesterday, but let me tell you why. So I pick, I've been following this somewhat comic um, situation with Nicki Minaj. Oh, yes, I did, a, I did a clip about her yesterday. Go ahead. Yes. So here's Nicki Minaj, and she obviously gives this preposterous story about her cousin and swollen testicles and so on. So I go on my podcast, and of course, I, I talk about it intelligently. I say, well, look, this is the, the post-hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, which is just because something comes after something else doesn't mean it was caused by it, right? I mean, I take the vaccine, I get in a car accident, the vaccine didn't cause the car accident. So I do all this. But then I see an article, supposedly a fact check, and it says that the health minister of Trinidad has uh, claimed that this article that Nicki Minaj's claim is disinformation, disinformation. So I read the article thinking, how on earth would they find out if this was disinformation? This guy claims that his testicles were swollen. Did they actually measure his testicles? <laughs> so I wrote a very wry, very tongue-in-cheek response, basically saying, this fact check seems to me kind of bogus. Uh, I see no indication that they even measured his testicles. What kind of fact <laughs> check is this? So then I get you know, this huge torrent of attacks on Twitter. They go, Tucker Carlson and Dinesh are rushing to the defense of Nicki Minaj. And I'm like, no, anyone who could actually read would see that I'm being ironic. I'm actually having sort of fun with the whole thing. I'm getting into the spirit of it. I'm also playing on the idea that most of these fact checks that we see on social media are bogus. In other words, what they do is they take legitimate differences of opinion and they portray them as differences of fact. Uh, and, if, and, and they take the fact that they don't agree with you and basically say you're putting on misinformation. You're not putting on misinformation. You're, you're just not saying what they agree with. So, so my tweet was really an attempt to goad this bogus fact-checking industry. Uh, and, and so this is the kind of thing I do. So I kind of know that I'm, you know, I'm kind of poking where, where it's going to make people jump. But my goal is always to stimulate a kind of reaction and an argument. Right. Well, you know, I, uh, the, the gist of my very short clip yesterday on Nicki Minaj was that I wasn't taking a position about the veracity of her position. You know, right. All that I was saying is that 
you know, in chapter eight of the parasitic mind, I talk about activate your inner honey badger, right? I'm compelling people that if they have a position that they think they can, you know, that is well articulated, what the veracity of that position is something different. The, the epistemological truth of it is different. But the fact that if you are sufficiently confident in a position, that you should at least have the intellectual honesty and testicular fortitude, since we're talking about testes, to be able to stand up and say, I'm going to defend those principles. And I was saying that she is a honey badger, whether we agree with her or not. And then, of course, I got all, I mean, not nearly the same kind of venom that you did, but some people said, well, how could you be? You're the man of science. You're the reason guy. You're the truth teller. Why are you supporting this? I said, I'm not talking about the veracity. It's just the fact that in a, in a world of castrated cowards, the fact that someone can stand up, like Nicki Minaj, I said, has bigger balls than most men in academia. And that's something to be, that's laudable. And it, it ends there, right? Well, this is the point. I mean, I think the really um, explosive quote by Nicki Minaj was not about COVID. It was when she said, listen, you know, basically when a Democrat says something and hands us blacks, you know, a bunch of marbles, we're supposed yeah. to stick those marbles up our anus. Yeah. You know, in other words, we're supposed to obediently yeah. do what the Democrats say. And this was really what Joy Reid was trying to pull on Nicki Minaj. Joy Reid was trying to be, you know, I'm, you know, the academic, I'm the intellectual. And so you, Nicki Minaj, you better sing out of my hymn book, so to speak. So and true. I think what, what Nicki Minaj did was she goes, I'm not going to, you know. Um, and, and, and so the refusal to accept the moral authority. In, in a sense, she was also turning the tables because in a sense what Nicki Minaj was basically saying is that you, Joy Reid, are, are sort of policing the plantation for the Democrats. And I, Nicki Minaj, don't want to be on it. Yeah. And I think this was her real heresy, and this is why they're all so nervous. They want to whip her into line because it's just not good for them to have someone so prominent whom they can't portray as some kind of a quote Uncle Tom. Nicki right. Minaj is about, you know, she's a very successful rapper with a huge following. So she was off the reservation, and that was the whole sort of subtext of what was going on. And there. I got the feeling that there was some saltiness uh, when she said, you know, I've got 2 million followers and you've got 22 million followers. It was part humble gra uh, brag and part uh, saltiness. I am the intellectual, she's hardly that, uh, you know, who went, I, I don't know, maybe to Harvard, whereas, you know, you're just, uh, you know, a rapper. And how could it be that I've got 10 times fewer followers than you? That's kind of the subtext that I read uh, there. Uh, does that sound reasonable? No, absolutely. And even the kind of, you know, what, what, what Joy Reid was doing was because she kept referring to Nicki Minaj as sort of sister, like sister. sister you know, yeah, let, yeah. Me, let me kind of tell you how it yeah, really yeah. is, this yeah. kind of thing. I, I want to appeal to your better self. I do not think Joy Reid expected that Nicki Minaj would turn around and fire back. So that was the big surprise. And of course, Joy Reid has not been heard from since on this topic. So, um, so I found the whole thing just extremely entertaining. And that's why I jumped into it. Fantastic. Okay, last question. Uh, I, of course, we could have this conversation for five hours, and I hope that you will come back on the show at some point. This I is, love it. This is really great. Uh, are there any? Not that you need my platform to promote your stuff. You've got a much bigger platform. But is there anything that's exciting you that's coming up that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, you know, I'll just mention my daily podcast because that's something I'm doing that's new. I um, I started it the middle of January, um, and it's it's kind of a unique podcast in that. Um, it deals not just it deals with politics, that's its primary topic, but it also deals with history and philosophy and literature. Uh, right now, for example, I, I'll do typically those segments at the end of the podcast. Um, I'm doing, for example, right now, I'm covering the debate between Martin Luther, um, uh, of course, uh, the, the founder of the Reformation, of and Erasmus, the great Catholic wow. humanist, on the issue of free will. Uh, a very important debate that actually has a secular counterpart uh, that goes on in neuroscience and philosophy, but this was the Christian version of it. Uh, ultimately, Martin Luther King was taking the position that, you know, divine grace is all that is necessary for salvation. Uh, and of course, Erasmus taking the position, well, wait a minute, if that were true, everybody would in fact be saved. Isn't there a human action that has to go, that has to sort of accept or reject 
this grace that is being offered by God. And so you've got this remarkable debate in which Luther goes, well, you need grace to accept grace. And so this, you can see how that pushes in a predestinarian direction at the end of the day, because it's sort of like God must choose in advance that this guy and this guy and this guy are the three guys I want in heaven, and I don't want these other guys. And Erasmus, of course, is recoiling as this kind of you know, humanist who basically believes, no, it's, it is human choice uh, and the consequences of those choices that matter most in the end. So, you know, this very interesting debate, but it's not the normal fodder for a typical political podcast. And so I give my audience, I mean, it's very much my kind of the way I like to look at things, um, but it's, it's the first time I've had a podium of my own. I mean, I do the books periodically, the movies periodically, but I haven't had a regular platform. I'm really enjoying the podcast. So I do it daily for an hour, audio and video, just a Dinesh Jesus' podcast. Oh, fantastic. You know, I have found that uh, I started my show about seven years ago, and I'm like a kid in a candy store because, you know, I can't think of a single guest that I've ever had on my show where I wasn't, you know, a priori excited like a little child to be speaking to them. And the fact that you know, if you're doing something innovative, something, uh, you know, genuine, something authentic that, you know, thousands, if not millions of people then flock to you is, is truly humbling and it is so exciting. And so on that note, thank you so much for contributing to that excitement. It's such a joy to speak to you, uh, Dinesh. I look forward to having many more conversations. Stay on the line so we could say goodbye offline. Thanks again for being on. Cheers. My pleasure. All right.